thank you for your patience in these things. You know, while we need to get moving along in the service, there's one other thing that really uh, needs to be said. I was thinking about the last couple months, in just in terms of all of us who have, uh, you know, given ourselves to preparing for their arrival. And uh, there are a, a, a few as well that have gone way above and beyond in terms of generosity of time and resources and all of that to just welcome this family to this new home and new community really well. And I was thinking about, you know, it's, I think it's really important that we just thank each other. You know, that, that the Lord is glorified when we thank Him for people that serve for His glory. You understand what I'm getting at? Right? Paul, when he's thinking about the Thessalonians, what does he say? I thank God every time I remember you because the love you have for all the saints. And I'm not going to say names here. It's a small church. Everybody gets it. But there are people in this room that really need to be uniquely and specially thanked for their service, for their time, their sweat, their troubleshooting, and all of it because, right, they have love for the saints. And that's what we showed over the last month. Praise God for Renovation Church for the love that you have for all the saints. And in thanking you, we give what? Glory to God. That's what it's all about. God receiving glory because of our lives. Amen? Amen. Sorry, just needs to be said. Needs to be said. So, I think parents will understand where I'm coming from when I begin to talk a little bit along these lines. Especially if parents have a couple of children at least. We have three. Three angels. And the parents are perfect too. (laughs) Oh, believe me. You know this struggle that you have, right? This this idea that, that oftentimes what happens is the child that's acting out the most is the one that's getting the most attention. Right? The person or the child that is struggling to be appropriate or struggling to uh, obey or struggling, all of a sudden, because you love your kids and because you're present in their life and you want to enter into their struggle and help them along, you go all in. You want to help them. And so, you give them attention. But then the other kid, who's not struggling at the time, begins to scratch their head a little bit. And they say, how come he or she's getting all the attention? Does this ever happen in anybody's house? I'm the only weirdo. Okay, that's great. There's something that goes on inside of us. Well, this isn't fair. I should be getting the attention. Someone should be honoring me and thanking me and praising me for how well I'm behaving. 
Why is all the attention going to correcting and disciplining and helping the one who is struggling? It just doesn't seem fair. It's just not right. Really, what should be happening is daddy or mommy should be spending time with me, and what we should do with that person who's struggling is give them the all-important, much-deserved time out. Lock them in the basement, put duct tape around their bodies, around a pole, and just say, have a nice day. We've never done that, I promise. We haven't done that, have we? No, we haven't. It just doesn't seem right. Today we go to a passage in Luke 15. If you want to grab your Bibles, please open up. Luke chapter 15, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. But basically, we have some super-duper holy people. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the Pharisees. The super-duper holy people. Right? They were the moral police. They did everything right. They knew the rules, and they followed them, and they knew it. And they also knew if you weren't following those rules. Right? And so... Uh, they knew that it wasn't right to spend time with the not-so-holy people. That was just one of the rules. The holy people don't spend time with the not-so-holy people. And so they walk around uh, making sure everyone's doing what is right, and if they see someone doing something that they would consider to be wrong or unholy, they are the whistleblowers. Right? And so what's interesting here is they're blowing the whistle at Jesus today. They're looking at who Jesus is, this supposed righteous, holy teacher who's claiming to be the way, the truth, the life, to be the bread of life, to be claiming all of these things about himself, connecting himself to the God that they worship identifying himself as such, but yet at the same time as a supposed holy person, he's hanging out with some not-so-holy people. The one who claims to be clean is hanging out with those who are dirty. Thus, in the Pharisee's eyes, guess what? He's becoming quite dirty himself. If you look at verse 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15, You'll read these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, the Pharisees are that good kid frustrated that Jesus is hanging out with, spending time with, investing in, giving all his attention to the not-so-good kids. You tracking with me? They're disgusted with the people that Jesus is hanging out with. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Such a way in which people build community and connect. A way in which association... And identification is given sitting around a table. We eat together often 
It's not just because we're Baptist. It's because that's where community is built. Right? And so Jesus is connecting and building community with people that the Pharisees would never consider spending their time with. And it frustrates the Pharisees. It concerns the Pharisees. And the Pharisees blow the whistle on Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at who he's spending his time with. And so the question becomes, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus spending his time investing his energy in people that are coined tax collectors and sinners? The spiritually bankrupt, the unclean, the worst of the worst. Why is Jesus investing his time in them and not the Pharisees, the real super-duper holy people? Well, Jesus gives us three parables in the rest of chapter 15 in Luke's gospel. Look at the first one, verse 3 through 7. So Jesus responds, and he told them this parable, verse 4. What man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus tells them a parable. It's the parable of the shepherd who has 100 sheep. 99 of them are doing just fine. He counts them out, he counts the 99, but he realizes that one is missing. And the people of that day would have completely understood the kind of emotion, the kind of crisis that the shepherd would find himself in, and the kind of action that the shepherd would take to do something about this lost sheep. And he's asking a question to the Pharisees and all those who are hearing, which one of you, if you had 100 sheep, 99 are fine, but one of them is lost, which one of you would not do everything that he could to go after and find that lost sheep. How many of you would leave the 99 and seek diligently after the one that was lost? Basically, getting at the point, well, of course you would, because that one sheep is valuable. And their attention, it's appropriate for attention to go, uh, the shepherd's attention to go to find that lost sheep. To pick it up, throw it on its shoulders, return back. But we can't miss this. That what's appropriate is the response that the shepherd has, right? The shepherd has a response of joy. I found my lost sheep. And it's not just a joy that he has on his own. It's a joy that he wants to share with others. Rejoice with me, he tells his friends. For the sheep that I lost was found. And then Jesus gives the application, right? Like this, in the life of the shepherd, this is what's going on in the heart of God. This is what's going on in heaven 
when one sinner repents and returns to me. There's joy in the heart of God. And God wants to share that joy with others. But not just sheep. Verses 8 through 10, he talks about a woman that's lost a coin. He asks another question. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. There it is again. For I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This woman has ten silver coins. Nine are doing just fine in her pocket. But there's one coin that she has lost. What does she do? Rhetorically speaking, she does what any one of us would do if we had lost something of that value. It's about a day's wages. Okay, not a gazillion dollars, but still a meaningful amount. Something of value that's worth searching for. I'll never forget what happened a couple months ago. Many of you may have heard this story already. So it was one of those nights in the Maisie family. You know it's crazy at the Maisies. It's just the way it is. And uh, we had been doing all this thing, moving, packing, doing all these things. It was during that moving month. And uh, we were at my grandparents. Uh, uh, we sold our boat. And yay, we sold our boat. Because everyone that buys a boat, guess what they start thinking about? When they can sell their boat. Uh, my wife's kind of mad that I said that. But nonetheless, we sold the boat. And I was so excited about it. But we had to test drive it. We're on Oneida Lake in April. It's freezing. It's choppy. We go back to my grandparents, pick up the kids. We're driving home. It's 8.45 at night. We're about a half a mile from the house when all of us realize that we have absolutely no food. There's nothing for lunches. And so me being the wonderful father that I am, volunteer to drop the wife off with the kids to put them to bed and all go to Trader Joe's. But we have to go fast. I've literally got 10 minutes to get in the door. And so I go into Trader Joe's, and then I get a phone call from one of my friends who's going through a tough time. So I got my phone like this. I don't have pants that, that have uh, pockets. And I got my wallet and my list and my keys, and I'm grabbing stuff off the shelves before they close. Any of you have one of those nights? I'm not exaggerating. I do a lot, but not this time. And I get all this stuff, I get into the car, they lock the doors at Trader Joe's. I go home, or just a, a short walk really to Trader Joe's, former house. And I get in the house and I do what every great husband does. I unload the groceries, I put them away, and then I go like this. Where's my wallet? You remember, I just sold the boat. There's cash in the wallet. 300, three C-notes in the wallet. And we're moving. So every dime counts. So I, what do I do? I do what everybody does, right? We start flipping couches. Like the place looks like it's been robbed, right? Everything. Back in the bags, in the trash, under the cushions. 
And then I realized, wow, maybe it's in the yard. So I grab the flashlight. I go all the way out to the car. I'm underneath the seats in the car multiple times back and forth. And then it hits me. I'm going back to Trader Joe's. So I go back to Trader Joe's, and I knock on the door. My wallet! Right? No, we never got a wallet. Never got a wallet. It's got to be here. Let me in. We don't have a wallet. Right? So, again, long story short, I drive home. We rip up the couches again. I literally sit on the floor like this. $300. My car, my license. And we tell our family, pray. We tell everybody, pray. We've lost our wallet. We've lost our money. All the, the church credit card. Like we're spazzing, you know. Because we handle crisis well in my house. And we're praying. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm like ready to call all the credit card companies. I'm like, no, no, this search is not over. So I grab my flashlight again. I go back to Trader Joe's. Every trash can at Barnes & Noble is open. I am in it. I'm doing one of these. You know, I'm walking all around the parking lot. And finally, I'm, I've given up. I open up the windows. I zigzag through Barnes & Noble, Trader Joe's. And then I'm done. It's over. And I drive up to Erie Boulevard, and I see this black bifolded thing laying on Erie Boulevard. And I'm so excited because I found my wallet. But the problem is it's empty. Right? And I'm so mad because clearly someone stole my wallet. But then I pull over to the side on Erie, put my flashers on. I walk all the way down Erie Boulevard. And I find receipt after receipt credit cards bent, right? Connection cards from church that were in my wallet. Dirty tire marks. And I realized nobody stole anything. I left it on top of my car. And I drove away. I'm the idiot. But as I'm walking from Trader Joe's to Chipotle at 10 o'clock at night, and I see one $100 bill, and then another $100 bill, and then a third $100 bill. Can you imagine the emotion and the joy of finding what I had lost? And then you know what we did? We called all of our family, all of our friends, and we said, rejoice with me. We f- the wallet that was lost is now found. True story. That's what we do. When we lose something of value, we search diligently to find it. And there's a connection between the sheep and the coin and what Jesus is doing. There's a connection. There's a joy in the heart of God when one sinner is repenting. There's a celebration in heaven when people come to their senses and return. And it's in this moment where Jesus transitions because really, we're not talking about sheep. We're not talking about coins. Jesus is progressively and slowly bringing people to that which is really valuable, the human life, the soul of men, women, and children, right? Recently, Annika was asking me, as her mind works, she said, Dad, uh, how much 
did I cost? What do you mean? Well, how much? I was in the hospital for how many days? It's like eight. You're in the NICU. She's like, wow, that probably cost a lot. I'm like, yeah, it did. How much per day? I'm like, I don't know, thousands. She starts to do the math, and I can't even remember the figure she threw out. But she's like, so what you're saying, Dad, is that I'm worth X thousands of dollars. And I said, no, Ani, you're priceless. And she goes, well, that's not very nice. Meaning, she takes it, you're not worth anything. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. What I'm trying to say is this. There's no dollar figure. There's no monetary value that we can attach to quantify the value of your life. Infinitely valuable as being made in the image of God, especially coming from the perspective of a father. There's no dollar that can quantify that. Jesus knows this. And so he brings us to people. There's joy in God, like there is joy when a shepherd finds sheep. There's joy in the heart of God when a woman finds, like when a woman finds a coin. And there's joy in the heart of God when a father finds a lost son. Amen? Verse 11 through 24. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And they began to celebrate. We see right from the beginning that the Father has and the Son lives in the joy and the delight of all that the Father has. And the Son says, give me my share. And then in this moment we see the nature and essence of sin, really, don't we? That uh, the Son who sins, the, the person who sins is one that takes what the Father has entrusted to them, and they go and they squander it away in thoughtless living. That is no logic, no thought process. Whatever I feel like doing, whatever feels good in the moment, I'm going to spend what my Father has given to me on it. Sounds like the American lifestyle, doesn't it? Whatever I feel like doing, I'm going to squander it away. I'm going to take what the Father has and I'm going to spend it all on my own temporal pleasures. But then we see not just the nature and essence of sin, but where it takes us. If you're wondering where your rebellion and your sin against God is going to take you, it will take you to this place. It will take you to a place where you have squandered everything, spent everything, and no one is giving you anything. You are bankrupt in every way, shape, or form. Don't let the temporal joys of American society or your own temporal successes in all the possessions that you have amassed trick you into thinking that you actually have something in standing before the living God. When we take what God has given to us, life, to be enjoyed and leveraged for the glory of the Father, and we spend it in our own ways, on our own pleasures, this will take us to a place that Satan would lie and say, that's the place you want to go. Take you to a place where you have nothing. You will have spent everything. But then we see the nature of repentance. He came to himself. He remembers his father. He remembers the, the simple yet peaceful state of just being provided for and cared for. Even the servants. Even just be a servant. I don't need to be a son. I'm not worthy to be a son. But just a servant. Even the servants of the Father have all that the Father has at His disposal, at their disposal, to be used and enjoyed for His glory and for their good. So He comes to Himself. And He returns home. And you can imagine the Father... You can imagine the father thinking about the son, and you can imagine the father just frustrated and disgusted and disappointed in his son. Offended, insulted. You took what was mine, and you spent it. You squandered it. You ruined it. Now live in the consequences of your actions. Be gone. So long. You had your chance. 
At the very least, you can imagine the father with a, a scowled look on his face with his arms folded. Who do you think you are to come back to my home? But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. This father is a representation for sure of our heavenly father who does not stand in disgust. That doesn't mean he approves of our behavior. But the father does not stand in disgust. You see, the posture of the father was to eagerly wait and to look and to see in the moment the father saw the son running or walking down the road, the father begins to run toward him to take the initiative of reconciliation in the life of the son. That the father feels compassion. In the deepest part of God, there's compassion for the lost sinner. Not just frustration, not just anger and wrath, and disappointment. Yes, he does not approve of our squandering, but oh, the compassion that he has, the compassion that Jesus has for the tax collectors and sinners, the compassion that Jesus has for you. And he runs, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him home. And he puts a robe on him. Puts a ring on his finger. He hears that humble confession of sin. He receives it. And then he restores his son to where he belongs. Sonship. Yes, a son that will serve. But a son. The status of the heir. The son. Friends, if you've never heard it before, or for whatever reason... You've been in church for 30 years, and for some reason, you have completely missed the gospel. Or at the very least, you've forgotten the posture of the Father toward the repentant sinner. Don't miss it today. On the basis of God's infinite mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, He will welcome the repentant sinner no matter how far sin took that individual, no matter how ugly and grotesque, no matter how spiritually bankrupt you are, the power of the gospel, the abundance and grace, and the mercy of the Father is available to you. Take it. Humbly confess your sin and receive the forgiveness that only the Father through Jesus Christ can give. That is the gospel. That's why we gather here to sing and to pray and to preach. Because God did that in each and every one of our lives. We're the lost sheep. We're the lost coin. We're the lost son. We can't miss that. This is us. This is the tax collector and the sinner. And Jesus is joyously, joyously sharing in, living for the joy of God. Right? You can't miss that. Let us eat and celebrate. That's the third time. Right? Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. They began to celebrate. 
How many times do we have to read it in the text before we realize that when we see a Jesus that invests his time and his energy in lost people's lives, that we are to take joy in that. That when we see people who are spiritually bankrupt repenting and returning to God, that that should be the thing that gives us infinite and increasing joy. Let us eat and celebrate. See, that's the mission that Jesus was called to. I'm not here to call the, uh, the, the healthy, what? But, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but what? Sinners. Sinners. Guys, that's you and me. That's us. People that apart from begging for the mercy of God, we live in complete debauchery, and in the consequences of our own sin. But if we just humbly recognize that the only hope we have is to come back to the Father and beg for mercy, that's when we will receive it. No matter how far sin has taken us, no matter how guilty we might feel, no matter how broken and hurt our soul might be, due to believing the lies of the enemy, to go down that road, to walk away from God and do this and try it your own way. When we come to our senses and humbly return to God, He will run, He will welcome, He will receive, He will forgive, and He will restore you back to where you belong. The status of a son. That's the gospel. Need I say more? Jesus is spending time with these tax collectors and sinners because he is sharing in and living for the joy of God as sinners repent and return to God. But not everybody's excited about it. And I'll briefly mention this, but I think it really brings home the whole passage. Verse 25 through 32, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes... You killed the fattened calf for him. Feel the emotion? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that I, I'm sorry, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. Don't miss that. It's fitting to celebrate. And be glad, for this your brother was dead 
and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the older brother feels entitled to a celebration in his honor. And some of you may not identify with this long list of debauchery and sin and this and that and the other thing, but some of you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I've pretty much lived a godly Christian life. I've done what's right. I've made those changes. I've obeyed God. I've, I've gone to church. I've, I've even joined the small group that Maisie leads. I give some money. Man, I... You ask people in our community, on what basis will you stand before God and He accept you into His presence in heaven? You know what most people say? I've been a pretty good person. I'm not perfect, but I've been a pretty good person. Right? The, the basis on which they stand before the Father is on the basis of their own Good works. As long as it's 5149, they're golden. As long as it's 5149, really, what should happen is a celebration should be had for me in heaven. Some of us may identify more easily with the older brother in the passage who shows his anger and his self righteousness, his religiosity, right? I never disobeyed a command. You never gave me a calf. What powerful, demanding words. And what contrast we see, right? The the repentant beg for mercy. But the religious demand reward. Where are you at in that equation? Are you in the presence of God no matter what season of life you find yourself in, are you down on your knees, arms held high, postured to the living God, begging Him for mercy? Or are you standing with nose held high, demanding reward? The older brother didn't realize it. But in this moment, he's just as lost as the other. Religion, religiosity, is just as lost as debauchery. If we stand on any other basis rather than the infinite, free grace through Jesus Christ before God, we stand on a slippery slope, a shaky ground, And we will fall flat on our face before God. So on what basis are you standing found before God? The basis of your own works? The basis of your cute little Christian life? That stays away from tax collectors and sinners? That we don't go to those places? We don't do those things? We don't talk in that way? We don't vote for that political party. Therefore, we're in good shape before God. Have we given ourselves any sort of spiritual resume that God is going to be impressed with? Demanding reward from His hand. If that's you, repent just like the one who lives in debauchery. This is an invitation for all of us to rejoice in what brings God joy and repent 
of any sin that doesn't give him joy. It's a strong message. So turn to God. Whether it's religion and self-righteousness, turn to God. Whether it's complete disaster of disobedience. Overt or not so overt sin. Repent. Run to God. Beg for mercy. And as you do, Share in the joy of God. I think that's ultimately what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing to every one of us what makes God happy. You know what it is? When tax collectors and sinners, when spiritually bankrupt people like you and me come to the realization that we need to be in the presence of Jesus, we need to stand upon His grace and His grace alone, and we beg for mercy... That's when God is happy. That's when heaven rejoices over one sinner. Every man, woman, and child that repents and returns to Him, that brings heaven joy. And He confronts our lack lack of joy in that. Right? The older brothers, the Pharisees. It's fitting that we should celebrate. Jesus lives for and shares in the joy of God. And implicitly, he's asking us to do the same. Our lives should be about sharing in and living for the joy of God. Is that your life? Take inventory. Are you praying for lost people? Are you eating with lost people? Are you spending time with lost people? Are you sharing the gospel with lost people? That means words. Your life is awesome, but it needs explained. You doing that? If not... It's living for something else. I'm racking my brain. You know why we moved here? You know why we left Missio? You know why we hired Becker? Everything that we do is because we want to share in and live for the joy of God as sinners come to repentance. That's what this church is all about. Nothing else. Living for and sharing in the joy of God. And oftentimes as we pray for and weep that there are not baptisms and conversions to the degree that we want to. When we think about the lostness of our place. We ask ourselves, what's standing in the way? We don't understand. Many things for sure, but could it be this? Could it be that we're sharing in and living for lesser joys than the joy of God? Could it be that as we attempt to reach suburban lives in five zip codes across this county, 
Could it be that our own suburban life is the very thing that's in the way of reaching suburban lives? Could it be that our heart and our crave for temporal, lesser joys than the joy of God that Jesus wants us to share in is the very thing that's in the way of us sharing in the joy of God as sinners come to repentance? Could it be that we're not praying, asking for God, because we're praying and craving something else? Could it be that we're not spending time with lost people because we're spending time with other people that we are more comfortable with or like a little bit more? Could it be that we're not sharing because we're talking about something else that we actually like in talking about a little bit more? Could it be that the reason we're not living for and sharing in the joy of God is because we live for and share in the lesser temporal joys of the suburban lifestyle? Could that be? When we come together for small group in the suburbs, every week my heart is broke. You know why? Because I feel and see what I call now the Wednesday glaze. What's God doing in your life? And everyone's like, so busy. We're running hard. We're running fast in our life, aren't we? We're trying to provide. We're trying to do what's right. We're trying to serve. Many of us are giving ourselves for the joy of God too. Don't want to be negative. And we're limited people. There's only so much we can do on our own, right? We give what we can. But my simple ask today, I believe this text is about the joy of God. The joy that God has when one sinner repents. The joy that Jesus is sharing in and living for. The joy that we are being invited to share in with Jesus. That means giving ourselves to seeing lost people come to faith in Christ. And you know what? If you were to just stop your suburban life for five minutes and begin to think and reflect upon the things that bring you the greatest amount of joy, you know what? It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not your vacation. It's not your kids scored four goals this week. Do you know what brings you the greatest amount of joy? When a daughter or a son or a spouse, or a coworker, takes that walk down that road to dad, to father. When a sinner that you love comes to their senses and realizes that they've spent everything that God has given them, and you would give up anything this world would offer to see that one sinner Come to faith. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? You'd give up anything this world offers, any temporal pleasures and joys, to enter in and share in the joy of God for that one person that you can't imagine 
spending eternity apart from God, come to faith. There's 10,000 people that live within a mile of this building. May God use us to reach them. And may we share in the joy of Christ. May we live for the joy of God. For the celebration we will all have in heaven where we sing together, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Glory be to Him forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Father, you're no grumpy God. You're a joyful God. And you do not hold that joy. You want to share it. We give you praise that you want to share your joy with us. We pray that you would hear our cries for mercy. We're sorry for demanding reward based on our own works. We stand on Christ alone. If there's anyone here today that says, I want to stand on the grace of Jesus Christ alone and receive the mercy of the Father, I pray that they would ask now and they'd be radically transformed in their standing before you on that basis. And I pray that every person at renovation, every one of Christ's people in the northern suburbs of this county would walk away from the promises of the suburban life so that we might share and live for the joy of God in reaching suburban lives. To you be the glory in Christ's name. Amen.